ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there, I'm Mark McKenna and welcome to the History Listen. I've been writing history now for over 25 years and I recently came across a remarkable story. It begins in late 1796, when a Scottish trading ship with a large Indian crew leaves Calcutta, bound for the new settlement of Sydney. But the journey across the Southern Ocean was rougher than expected. Their ship, named Sydney Cove, was wrecked on a remote island off Tasmania's northeast coast. A handful of the strongest men were chosen to row to Sydney to get help. And this is where the story really gets interesting. The rowboat was wrecked on 90 Mile Beach in Victoria and the men found themselves stranded. Their only option was to walk 700 kilometres to Sydney. One man, 27-year-old William Clark, kept a diary. So with Clark's journal in hand, I sought out my friend, naturalist and writer, John Blay. And together, we set out to trace their journey. A journey that only three of them survived. Here's our story of their story. I'm sitting above Watermulla Beach, which is about 50 kilometres south of Sydney, and I'm looking down at the very spot where William Clark, John Bennett, and one Lasker sailor, the last three men, were seen by a fishing boat in May 1797. They'd walked over 700 kilometres and here in the last moments of their journey they were seen crawling along the beach, luckily spotted by the boat and were taken the last few kilometres to Sydney. This place is where their walk ends but for me as a historian I can't help but think of the place where it all started. So from here I'm going down to Tasmania, where their ordeal really began. My first stop is the Queen Victoria Museum in Launceston, which holds a large collection of objects from the wreck of William Clark's ship, Sydney Cove. And curator John Addison is as fascinated as I am by the story. It's amazing what's been recovered after so long. Sydney Cove was absolutely loaded down with alcohol. Alcohol for the masses, alcohol for the elite. We're looking at the 220-year-old bottles, wine bottles, brandy bottles, gin bottles, three pipes of Madeira. This was not your standard European ship. The company of Campbell and Clark refitted this ship and then they changed the name to Sydney Cove in honour of the ship's eventual destination. Shows what a big thing this was, that, they, that the whole, it wasn't just a routine voyage, this was a special speculative voyage that was hopefully going to make them a lot of money. It was a dangerous profession but one with rewards and a refitted ship that was newly sheathed in copper and in pretty good nick should be good enough for a voyage like that. As it turns out, they were wrong. Man overboard! 
Sydney Cove and its crew of about 55 were shipwrecked on a deserted island off the northeast coast of Tasmania. From here, the nearest European settlement was Port Jackson, and that was over a thousand kilometres north. Captain Hamilton picked 17 crew to try and sail to Port Jackson to get help to be rescued, 12 of whom are Laskers. Lasker was the generic European name for Indian seamen. And the only seaworthy vessel they had was the longboat, which is roughly the size of a surfboat. It had oars, a steppable mast and a sail. A fair amount of Australia's coastline's been mapped, but Van Diemen's Land, Tasmania, only the east coast has been mapped. There's this great sweep of hypothetical coastline and Bass Strait's not there. In 1797, officially Bass Strait didn't exist. Bass Strait is, of course, a very, very rough piece of water and the longboat is wrecked. So now you have a crew stuck on another piece of deserted coastline, what is now 90 Mile Beach, in Victoria. And they're in an area that no European has ever traversed. Nobody has ever walked this section of coastline before. One of these crew members is, of course, William Clark. For, for almost 200 years, people were interested only in either ends of this story. They were interested in the shipwreck end and they were interested in the destination end in Sydney. And it's almost as if the country in between was marginal to the whole thing. And it's only recently that we've actually started to pay attention to what is, after all, the true heart of the story, which is the country and the people which they met along that walk. William Clark is in his late 20s when he's walking the coast. What we've got is we've got 6,000 words, which is effectively excerpts from his journal. Clark's journal, of course, made it with him to Sydney. He kept it daily, almost daily, on his walk. He goes back to Calcutta from Sydney after he'd recovered to tell Robert Campbell, the owner of the ship, what has happened. And there in Calcutta, he publishes, with the aid of a journalist, 6,000 words excerpt from his journal. March 15th, 1797. We begin our journey for Port Jackson. Walked for miles along a sandy beach. We fell in with a party of natives, about 14, all of them entirely naked. They were struck with astonishment at our appearance and were very anxious to examine every part of our clothes and body. From their gestures, it was easy to perceive that they considered our clothes and bodies as inseparably joined. Walked about 16 miles along the seaside. I'm at the mouth of the Bega River on the northern end of Tarthra Beach. Every time I'm on a beach on the south coast of New South Wales, I can't just sit without thinking of a line of walkers out there on the shoreline. I've walked sections of the paths with naturalist John Blay, but John's walk further than anyone else along this coast, and of course, with their original journey constantly in his thoughts. I've become obsessed with this story, you might say, 
partly because I've been able to talk about it over many years with John. And here we are again together in this magic location. From where they landed on 90 Mile Beach, this would be about halfway. We discussed this journal as being the holy grail of Australian history. In 2001, I'd heard about the people walking and I went to the Mitchell Library and checked out the journal. I walked from 90 Mile Beach, swimming across the entrances where they swam across, checking out the rafts and things like that. And I found, I believe, all of their campsites and all of the places where they made contact with the Aboriginal people. Walked for miles along a sandy beach, past several small rivers and one so large that we were obliged to construct a raft to cross it. And I think the reason why this story hadn't held in the historical circles was that historians would look at it and they couldn't make head or tail of it. They didn't know where anything had happened. You have to know something of the country through which they moved. And of course we can't replicate the circumstances in which they walked. But otherwise, if you don't do that, if you don't walk through the country, then you're just relying on the textual sources alone. And the country itself is a source, not just the documents. They had been walking east to west across the 90 mile beach, but then here where the coast swings really north, it's many more difficulties for them. And this point where we are now at the mouth of the Bega River is a really significant place in terms of their walk. Everything changed from here. This morning, we went inland about three or four miles, made a raft and crossed a large river. Its banks were delightful. They were following Aboriginal paths that took them slightly inland. The trees, tall and majestic, added dignity to the stream and gave the surrounding country a a beautiful and picturesque appearance. It's one of the few places where they left the coast. They said on the 7th of April, we went some way into the country over hills and valleys. After a walk of 16 miles, we halted at twilight. And as we reclined our heads to rest on the bank, we could just hear the roaring of surf on the the seashore. Mark is reclining, he's reclining, leaning back, talking about the beauty of the country with the the sound of the surf, the distance of the surf in his ears. That's a wonderful image, I think. The agreeable temperance, together with the beautiful scenery, opened our view through a most delightful country. April 5, rice runs out. As they would have walked through here, there would have been much taller spotted gums than we can see now. We had the good fortune this day to have a friendly native in company who undertook to be our guide, by whose good-natured assistance we were enabled to avoid several high points and cut off a great deal of ground. 
Clark refers to his Aboriginal guides, he refers to his Aboriginal helpers, he's actually looking for them. And kindly treated us with some shellfish, which formed a very acceptable meal. After this, we proceeded six miles further and halted. The people there, I believe, showed them a way to go which wasn't following the immediate total coast. Aboriginal men then kept reappearing as they walked along. Pointing, you can imagine, they were pointing. And would help them across the bits they knew they would have difficulty with. Arms outstretched, you know, trying to convey this way, this way. They were helping them because they could see that they needed to be fed, they, they could see they needed water, and sometimes they camped with them as well. They arrived at the spot to cross, and there were the Aboriginal people waiting with a feed yeah, of oysters I, and mussels. They actually used the word our friends. The, uh, our friends, our friends surprised us, and there they were, uh, as if they knew what was required. So it's a wonderful moment, yeah. The true drama here is this incredible story of contact between two radically different cultures. That's the heart of this story, and it's the heart of Australian history after all, not just this story. 15th of April. On the banks of this river, we remained for the night. Our poor, unfortunate companions, worn out by want and excessive fatigue, now began to drop behind very fast. At this place, we were under the painful necessity of leaving nine of our fellow sufferers behind. They being totally unable to proceed further. They shouldn't have been as weak and crawling kind of as they were. It's not just lack of food that gets them in this condition. And I believe it's the burrowing question Burrowing kernels are neurotoxic and as they walked through this country they would have seen the burrowings in fruit and they've got a large kind of pineapple. At this time of the year it bursts and the seeds spill out. As they went through here they would have found where Aboriginal people had been gathering these nuts, where they'd been cracking them and getting the kernels out. The Aborigines did that, but before they ate them, they used to wash them for at least two weeks in fresh water to get the toxins out. This is my observations as a naturalist. I think they probably did eat them. And well, yeah, and they, they do actually talk at one point in the journal. Clark mentions um, eating wild, what he calls wild plants. Yeah, doesn't, of course he doesn't name, uh, name or describe the plant, but he does talk about eating wild plants. It would have had this sort of cumulative effect and they would have been a bit like having Parkinson's disease, for example, as well as being very ill. After this point, the condition went down radically, their health and the way they could walk. Twelve of them, we know, and this is one of the really intriguing aspects of this uh, whole tale, is that all of them Laskers were left behind at Maruya, or, shall I say, they chose to stay behind at Maruya, and uh, we don't know what happened to them. We don't know about their fate. But judging from the contact that they'd already had to that point in time, it's pretty clear to me 
that at least some of those people actually were adopted into indigenous cultures and tribes there and may well have reproduced. Now, we don't have evidence of that, but it seems to me less likely that all would have perished. When Hugh Thompson, the first mate, the ship's first mate, Hugh Thompson, nearly drowns crossing a river, Clark is astonished not one of the Laskers who were still walking attempted to, you know, jump in and save Thompson. And really, I think partly that can be explained, you know, by the fact that maybe they were annoyed at having to leave their, their fellow countrymen behind at Maruya. They would be able to catch up with us in a day or two, as we now often stopped some time with the natives when we found them kind to us. Once they'd established that relationship, it was a solid interested relationship. They were all interested in each other. Mm. And it seems acts of generosity and that cu- weren't ex- yeah. unexpected <clears throat> generosity. A generosity and curiosity. They're intrigued about these people, these ghosts walking north. Oswald Briley writing in 1844 at Twofold Bay talked about a man called Budgenborough. Budgenborough introduced Briley to his father who talked about the first whitefellas who walked through that country around Twofold Bay and I believe it's not conclusive but the people he would have been talking about would have been Clark's gang. How when they first came they ran and hid and watched them go past. They retreated into the hills yeah and were all jumped up white. That expression, jumped up white, is kind of like, you know, appeared from nowhere? It meant that they believed that these people coming through were the spirits of the Aboriginal ancestors. When you burn a body, as sometimes the bodies were burnt, the black skin peels away and it's white underneath. And so this was the, the ancestors coming back white was an explanation. Um, they believed at first, but soon realised they weren't the spirit of their ancestors and when, yeah. and they treated mm. them like human beings rather than the ancestors. Mm. It's possible that they perceived them all the way as spirits of their ancestors because they had no other reason to believe that they were not. There are parts of this, this story that we disagree on mm. and it's fantastic and it's in those disagreements where you really get down to working out what might have happened. In a way, that's part of its magic, isn't it? That it's, that it's sort of, we know enough to be able to recreate to some extent what happened, to imagine what happened. And in another way, we don't know enough that we keep, <laughs> we keep trying to <laughs> imagine our way into those spaces. Do, do you, Mark, do you wish now you'd had more space to devote to this? Would you have liked to have had more time to put into this story? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that I felt that I'd extended the limits of the story as history and that if I was to go further, then I would enter the corridors of speculation and imagining my way into different circumstances. I felt that I'd reached the limits of what I could do as a historian with the information that I had at hand. (laughs) 
bent our way towards the beach this morning, when a great danger stared us in the face. For here, we were met by about 50 natives who were armed. Having never before seen so large a group, we were much alarmed. However, we resolved to betray no symptoms of fear. Two days on from here, as they were crossing the Murrow River, which is the deeper channel that had to wait for the tide to change. And as they went ashore, there was this big war party of people came down and were incredibly threatening. They came on with dreadful shoutings. Fortunately, however, from the particular attention we paid to their old men, whom we supposed to be their chiefs, and making them some small presents, they soon left us. At their departure, several of them placed their spears in the throne sticks, ready to discharge at us. It scared the living daylights out of them, and they were the most warlike people that they'd found. These were Durangange people from the Durangange branch of the Yuan people. We gave a piece of cloth in exchange for a large kangaroo tail with which we endeavoured to make some soup. Walked eight miles. They proceeded on their, on their way, but then two days later, when they met up with another clan, we met 14 natives who conducted us to their miserable abodes in the wood adjoining to a large lagoon and kindly treated us with mussels, for which unexpected civility we made them presents. These people seemed better acquainted with the laws of hospitality than any of their countrymen whom we had yet seen. They possessed a liberality to which the others were strangers and freely gave us a part of the little that they had. And so you, you get these contrasting attitudes of different clan or tribal groups along the way. One of the things the story reveals is clearly defined indigenous territories. And Clark is walking and noting in his notebook that the differences between people as he moves north. And that is a, a, an incredible realisation in 1797. By researching the journal, we find sacred truths about the countryside and about how the people lived there and how they regarded each other. Mm. And clearly, the different tribal groups they passed weren't at war with each other. Yeah, and that's, that's so important. I mean, you know, it's, the story really strips away this kind of conceit that Australia is inhabited by natives. Full, you know, and, and so what we see in this story is, you know, we see those territorial boundaries, we see the different... We see Australia founded, clearly founded, as a succession, uh, you know, a mosaic of Aboriginal nations and countries. At 9am, we observed several natives on top of a high bluff. A few of them began throwing their spears upon which we made signs for them to desist. No sooner had we turned our backs on this savage mob than they renewed hostilities and wounded three of us. Mr. Hugh Thompson, myself, and my servant. Notwithstanding this disaster, we, in our painful situation, proceeded eight miles to get clear of these savages. That night, 
The anguish of our minds and the pain of our wounds prevented the possibility of sleep. If you look at the journal, and essentially over that 700 kilometre journey, there's only really a question mark about one death. Otherwise, for the rest of the journey, every mention is predominantly friendly. I, I think that the carpenter had a record of being very disrespectful and rude to the Aboriginal people. And in a sense, I'm glad that he suffered for that. But I mean, it's, it shows that they would take retribution on the people who weren't respectful to them. And if this crew, even Clark, if he hadn't been respectful, they wouldn't have had the same journey they had without that respect. I think that Clark also learnt respect as he walked. The 15 following days of our journey were much the same as the preceding, until May 17th, 1797, when we, very fortunately, spotted a fishing boat about 14 miles south of Botany Bay. So at this very spot, and it's not a large beach, the last three men, William Clark, John Bennett and one Lasker, were seen waving and yelling while crawling along the beach. It must have been a sight. They caught the attention of the fishermen and at that moment their epic journey had come to an end. When they finally arrived in Sydney, they were the talk of the town. They talked about the bounties you know, of the grasslands mm, yeah, here, right. of the seals there, of the whales, mm, the yep. coal. They suddenly realised the value of the continent. And they, it was a way for them to see Australia mm. that they hadn't been able to experience before. Mm. Until this story arrived in Sydney in 1797, their eyes were attuned more to distant London than the country around beyond Sydney. This was terra incognita for them. So it really shifted the mindset of the whole colony and opened it to the country beyond in a way that no other story had managed to do up until that point in time. You've been listening to The Sailor's Walk, a remarkable story that's remained dormant for far too long. The program was produced by Ros Blewett and the sound engineer was Russell Stapleton. You also heard my naturalist and argumentative friend, John Blay. Clark didn't wait in Sydney a day longer than he had to after they'd got back. He took the first boat back to India, even though it was going the long way through China. He got out as soon as he could. He'd yeah, seen he enough of this country, well, I reckon. I, maybe, maybe. But he wasn't but... well. He wasn't well, and also um, it was his duty to go back and tell Campbell what had happened to the ship. He could have written to him. He could have stayed and kept the industry going. You're being a bit hard on the bugger. <laughs> well, he, he, he could have stayed... And we love a great history discussion. And for more great history, head to our webpage, 
There's some wonderful photos there of John's walk in the footsteps of William Clark. Just follow the links on the ABCRN homepage to the History Listen. I'm Mark McKenna. Thanks for your company. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.